What is utilitarianism? Other than a very enjoyable word to say, say it, utilitarianism. Utilitarianism is the most important and influential ethic of modern times, but also one of the most controversial because it seems to undermine conventional moral views. Utilitarianism, as the word suggests, argues that the best ethical theory is the one that maximises utility. This is applied to mean that the best course of action one should take is to maximise the well-being of sentient entities. Utilitarianism's founder, Jeremy Bentham, advocated for animal rights, for reforming the dire condition of pensioners and to broaden the suffrage. His most famous disciple, John Stuart Mill, advocated freedom of thought and expression. While Bentham was almost alone in his time for opposing laws making homosexual acts illegal. Utilitarianism has had many critics, from the good like Dostoevsky, Charles Dickens and Aldous Huxley, who inserted opposition to utilitarianism in their fiction. Dickens's 1854 novel Hard Times features the cold-hearted, fact-obsessed Mr Gradgrind which was often seen as a denunciation of utilitarianism. To the bad, and Karl Marx, who called Bentham, quote-unquote, a genius in the way of bourgeois stupidity, though Peter Singer was later to say that, quote, Marx was as scornful of utilitarianism as of any other ethical theory, close quotes. To the ugly, where Nietzsche called utilitarianism slave morality for, quote-unquote, the cowardly, the timid, and the petty. But the reason utilitarianism has lasted so long is that when asked, what should I do? Or, what should society do? Utilitarianism often gives the simplest answer. The right thing to do is to bring about the best consequences, where the best consequences means for all those affected by our choice, the greatest possible net increase in the surplus of happiness over suffering should be the option you pick. The idea that we should make the world the best place we can be in, in which every individual has the highest possible level of well-being, is an obvious one. So it shouldn't come as a great surprise to many that many people throughout history have stumbled upon the idea before it was named utilitarianism. Ideas like being fixed in opposition to the fixed ideas and morality of religious dogma and traditional morality was perhaps quite revolutionary. Mosey was a philosopher who lived 490 to 403 BC. The dominant ethic at the time in China was Confucianism, which sees ethics as focused on one's role and relationships and duties and how they are dependent on traditional customs. Countering Confucianism comes Mosey, who was the earliest philosopher of what we now come to call utilitarianism. Mosey hypothesised a society who ate their firstborn child and pointed out that customs are not self-justifying. We should assess the custom and judge it by the simple maxim, does the custom lead to more benefit than harm? At the time of Mosey was an Indian thinker called Gautama, also known as Buddha. Buddha's teachings has numerous utilitarian ideas, such as reducing suffering, both of your own and by others, by cultivating compassion for all sentient beings. 
The precursor of Bentham's invention was what could be called the direct precursor to Bentham's invention is what we call Anglican Utilitarianism. Richard Cumberland in 1672 wrote a treatise of the law of nature. In it, it was suggested that God's law are reductible to one idea, promotion of the common good of rational agents, namely the honour of God and the happiness of humans. By the 1730s, utilitarianism stressed conduct rather than belief in the doctrine as the foundation of good Christian life, and it believed that knowledge was derived from natural reason. These two strains led to a new interest away from morality, as derived from revelation, into a knowledge derived from natural reason. Meanwhile, over in France, the French Enlightenment wasn't going to let those pesky Anglo-Saxons take the lead in philosophy. And perhaps the immediate precursor to Bentham was Helveticus, who interestingly gives his name to the font of Helveticus. The Helveticus font was used on the front cover of his 1788 book on man. It is said of Helveticus that, quote, the premises of Bentham are all clearly given by Helveticus, close quotes. His work, published in 1758, De Spirit, was publicly burned, and it has been argued that this book was more important in building the intellectual scaffolding of the French Revolution than Rousseau's seminal social contract. Helveticus emphasised the continuity of humans with animals and denied inherent evilness in man, at odds with religious orthodoxy. Jerry Bentham, 1748-1832, is of course a giant of English philosophy, so much so that he was named in midfield by the Monty Python footballer's sketch. Bentham coined the term utilitarianism in the summer of 1781 during a dream. Bentham was something of a child genius. He was sent at 12 to Oxford to study law, but instead he wrote about how to reform law. He became friends with the Earl of Shelburne, a Prime Minister, and James Mill, father of John Stuart. His seminal work, An Introduction to the Principles of Morals and Legislation, published in 1789, is the key text to utilitarianism. He states, quote, It is the greatest happiness of the greatest number that is the measure of right and wrong, close quotes, and, quote, the obligation to minister general happiness was an obligation to paramount and to inclusive of every other. Close quotes. It wasn't long before the introduction to the principles of morals and legislation, IPML, and other work by Bentham was translated into French and other languages and spread throughout the world. Bentham's French translator, Pierre Etienne Louis Dumont, Translation had an initial run of 3,000 copies and was, quote, frequently quoted in many official compositions relating to civil or criminal codes, close quotes. Bentham's work was then translated into Russian, Spanish, German, Hungarian, Polish and Portuguese. Bentham's success abroad was as instantaneous as the 19th century allowed. As we've seen in France with the fall of the Ancient Regime, 
Bentham had a huge impact. In Portugal, his work was almost adopted by a liberal Portuguese government until counter-revolutionary forces took over. In South America, it was enormously popular with it being taught in Grand Colombia to all law students in 1825 until Simon Bolivar bowed to clerical pressure and banned its teaching. But in Britain, the initial release of Bentham's work was received quite poorly. It took until the end of the Napoleonic Wars in 1815, with reform now on the table for Bentham's work, to which start becoming more understood and more appreciated. His 1817 paper, Plan of Parliamentary Reform, announced the tenets of his democratic politics. The elimination of royal patronage, a substantial extension to the franchise, annual elections by secret ballot, the election of intellectually qualified members of parliament, and the regular publication of parliamentary debates. The most important of his tenets was the Public Opinion Tribunal, which is the freedom of press and public opinion. By the time of Bentham's death, in 1832, his ideas had spread throughout the globe. His correspondence with US figures such as Madison, Quincy Adams and Jackson, as James Cribbins describes, led to Bentham becoming, quote, an elder statesman in the world of legal philosophy and political radicalism, and a man respected as the leader of the utilitarian school whose philosophy would occupy a central place in the discussion and political thought and continue to inspire reform in Britain and elsewhere for much of the century." The word genius is overused, and the phrase, the word genius is overused, is now also a cliché used as a prefix when you're about to heap praise on somebody. But John Stuart Mill fills many different ideas of what a genius should be. Precocious at a young age, he could read Ancient Greek at three, Latin and eight, and at fifteen had read most of the classics in their original languages. He read history widely, mastered a large amount of mathematics, logic, science, and economics. Not content with being a prodigy, he became the most influential thinker in the liberal tradition, and effectively laid the groundwork for the liberal world. This is actual genius. He is also the subject of one of the most famous clerahues. A Clarehue is a tongue-in-cheek, four-line biographical poem with the rhyming scheme A-A-B-B. My second favourite Clarehue is Sir Christopher Wren said, I am going to dine with some men. If anyone calls, say I'm designing St Paul's. While the famous John Stuart Mill Clarehue is, John Stuart Mill, by a mighty effort of will, overcame his natural bonhomie, and wrote Principles of Political Economy. John Stuart Mill was a popularizer, especially at home, of utilitarianism. The 1861 book, Utilitarianism, is one of the most important events in 19th century philosophy. Its easy-to-read style pushed utilitarianism into the forefront as one of the great philosophical traditions, to rival that of Aristotle or Kant. Mill consistently argues for the defence of free thought and expression, and the liberty of actions and lifestyles that do not harm the legitimate interests of others. With the death of Bentham, utilitarianism was now a legitimate philosophical thought,
but there were still attacks. With Anglicanism still being the state religion, so much so that Mill was never able to attend Oxford or Cambridge, as he was a nonconformist who refused to subscribe to the 39 Articles of the Church of England, much of Mill's time was spent batting off attacks. In 1869, in the subjugation of women, he argued for greater equality in marriage, first-class citizenship for women, and great economic opportunities. While, in 1861, in considerations of representative government, he expressed the view that representative government best ensured the interests of the working classes. He claimed electoral participations made people more active and intelligent than benevolent authority. In a posthumously published essay, he argued against the appeals to nature and the appeal to God's will as a basis for ethics. The result of Mill was to popularise utilitarianism and dignify a defence of the tradition, as he was now recognised as the greatest British philosopher of his time. The third great proponent of early utilitarianism we will look at was the one who took it to new levels of sophistication, Henry Sidgwick. Following the tradition of Bentham and Mill, Sidgwick's major life work was the methods of ethics, or just the methods. His aim was to present and compare the different methods of reasoning we can use when we decide what we ought to do. His book discusses three of these methods, egoism, intuitionism and utilitarianism. The methods is notable for the care it takes to discuss a wide range of issues, objectivity in ethics, the failure of common sense morality, the nature of ultimate good, obligations to the poor, and whether utilitarians should seek the highest average level of happiness or the greatest total quantity of it. This contrasts with Mill's book Utilitarianism, which is short and sweet and probably lacking in depth though it's probably for this reason that Mill's work is now the second most widely read philosophical text after Aristotle. Derek Parfit once said of the methods that while Plato's The Republic and Aristotle's work The Ethics are the greatest achievements in philosophy, the methods, quote, contains the largest number of true and important claims, close quotes. Of course, over time, there have been many different debates within the utilitarian movement, and these started with Bentham and Mill, and have been debated in philosophy seminars ever since. One of the key innovations that Mill made to utilitarianism was the idea of higher and lower pleasures. Both men were hedonists. They believed that the only things of value and disvalue, as the end of actions, results in either pleasure or pain. They believed that one might be pleased or displeased at some external event occurring, but the pleasure or lack thereof would be in your mind and in your consciousness of it. Bentham analysed pleasure a lot and came to the conclusion that most pleasure consists of a certain intensity per moment and a certain duration. Bentham's idea is of a quantitative pleasure, a pleasure that can be measured. But Mill's idea was that pleasure should only be qualitative. It can only be subjected by the person enjoying it. Therefore, the only way to decide is based on an individual person's preference for judgments of pleasure. 
Mill claims that gratification from petty pleasures only gives short-term happiness and, subsequently, worsens the individual who may feel that his life lacks happiness, since the happiness is transitory, whereas intellectual pursuits give long-term happiness because they provide the individual with constant opportunities throughout the years to improve his life by benefiting from accruing knowledge. It should be noted that Mills views intellectual pursuit as, quote, capable of incorporating the, quote-unquote, finer things in life, close quotes, while petty pursuits do not achieve this goal. Mill is saying that intellectual pursuits give the individual the opportunity to escape the constant depression cycle since these pursuits allow them to achieve their ideals, while petty pleasures do not offer this. Bentham would have counted all pleasure as good pleasure, while Mill suggests that there are higher and lower pleasures. After the release of Mill's magnum opus, Utilitarianism, he was charged with overcomplicating hedonism, with the distinction of higher and lower pleasures. However, while it might have been harder at the time to measure pleasure, it was far easier to measure pain. Toothache and stomach pain are not only in different areas of the body, but also feel different as pains. The two men, Bentham and John Stuart Mill, and their debate over higher and lower pleasures is interesting. However, I do think there is something said for the distinction between higher and lower pleasures. You cannot simply live your life by only observing the higher pleasures of intellectual pursuits. If lower pleasures are counted as ones that we can share with animals, eating, drinking, sex, physical exercise, you would not want to lose all of these pursuits. You should mix these in with more intellectual pursuits. You wouldn't want your life, really, to only involve eating, drinking and sex, but you wouldn't also want your life to only revolve around reading philosophy. In your life, you should probably aim for a little of both. A bit of high intellectual pleasure, and then a bit of low, dirty pleasure every now and again. Moving away from aristocratic intellectuals and towards the 20th century, when academic education became democratised and utilitarianism became professionalised. While the fundamentals of the philosophy had been sorted, there was an aim for greater precision of the doctrine and how it could be better applied to the real world. Firstly, utilitarian thinking began to have a strong influence on law, political and economic policy. Its ideas became applied to abortion, euthanasia, suicide, charity, and with Peter Singer's 1975 work Animal Liberation, increasingly on animal farming and animal experimentation. What Singer did was to focus the point about not whether animals can reason or talk, but whether they can suffer. To further expound on the point that utilitarianism had become professionalised was Bentham's formulation of utilitarianism, quote, that action is best which procures the greatest happiness for the greatest numbers, close quotes, became to be seen over the 20th century as too overly simplistic to base a whole legal, judicial and ethical system around. During the 20th century, philosophers would debate how best to extrapolate this criticism of Bentham's formulation and to turn it into something more precise. 
Here we get act and rule utilitarianism. Act utilitarianism means that each action should be judged in terms of its consequences. Rule utilitarianism is that acts are to be judged right or wrong by showing that they are in accord with or transgress a justified moral rule. And a moral rule is justified by showing that acceptance of the rule by the overwhelming majority of people will bring about the best outcome. The idea of rule utilitarianism is that following the rules will normally have the best consequences. The main paradox of rule utilitarianism is that if there are a change of circumstances and the best result changes, then the rule should change too, meaning that many must observe the situation changing and following the rule gets worse for many people before they will consider a change. It should be noted that for the vast majority of laws, rule utilitarianism is effectively how they are written. Countries are run mostly on rule utilitarianism, e.g. you must follow this rule. But families, for example, are run on act utilitarianism. How many families have a written instruction of what you can and cannot do? We live our lives by act utilitarianism, but countries are run by rule utilitarianism. Imagine if they flipped the two. We would get anarchy in the streets, but rules in the sheets. If we made society all based on rule utilitarianism, we would get fascism and totalitarianism. Some rule utilitarians may think I'm being too unfair on it as a criticism, and that rules can be more precise, and that rules can be made to be precise. Do not steal is an obvious law, but if you steal a loaf of bread to stop yourself starving, is that so bad? A rule utilitarian's response may be to say that many caveats can be placed into a law to address these issues. Do not steal unless somebody's life can be saved by such an act may be a rule utilitarian's answer to these problems. But what about if stealing would not prevent death, but blindness or a broken bone? Is stealing still a crime or not? It would be impossible to legislate for all of these rules. And even if you could, the rule utilitarian would merely turn into an act of act utilitarianism. One of the classic cases to consider is torture. Most right-minded people would consider torture to be wrong, plain and simple. It's barbaric, doesn't often work, and can invite, in the long run, recriminations. But as the thought experiment goes, if a terrorist is holding a nuclear bomb primed over a major populated area and only one person knows where it is being held and how to turn it off, what do you do? For the rule utilitarian, the idea to torture somebody, whatever the circumstances, is a no-no because the rule says torture is bad. But to me, this is also wrong. People often praise the Quakers and Gandhi for their pacifism, and in certain circumstances, this is justified. But Gandhi's advice during a blitz was, quote, invite Hitler and Mussolini to take what they want of the countries you call your possessions. Let them take possession of your beautiful island with its many beautiful buildings. You will give all this, but neither your minds nor your souls, close quotes. And it shouldn't be forgotten that Gandhi also suggested that the Ethiopians should allow themselves to be slaughtered by the Italians, and his advice for the Jews 
was that they should adopt non-violent against the Nazis, and even on a couple of occasions praising Hitler. Though we'll get back to Gandhi and his more positive elements in our episode on non-violent resistance. For me, in the situation we talked about, the only solution is really you have to torture the terrorists to try and get information out of them. Given that torture seems to be one of the top candidates for the worst things you could do to another human, and that unless you're a fundamentalist, you believe in very certain circumstances that torture could be permissible, it would seem to be there are very few absolute moral rules. Now, the act utilitarian, as we discussed, would say that there is a complete moratorium on torture. Now, this distinction between act and rule utilitarianism has been around for a while. But there is a third option. It is that while we say there is a complete moratorium on torture, and we say this in public, in private a select few are able, under select circumstances, to violate the prohibition. Sidgwick also considered this point, and said that many people would find the idea repugnant, calling it quote-unquote esoteric morality for an enlightened few. He also said he found the idea inescapable. Bernard Williams called this government house utilitarianism. Drawing parallels with the colonial era of British government officials deciding in their enlightened views what was best for the natives. The obvious drawback is then deciding who is the enlightened few. There are many criticisms for these utilitarian ideas, and this wouldn't be a balanced podcast if we didn't respond to a few of them. It was Fyodor Dostoevsky when Ivan challenges his brother, Alosha, quote, Imagine that you are creating a fabric of human destiny, with the object of making men happy in the end, giving them peace and rest at last but that it was essential and inevitable to torch to death only one tiny creature, that baby beating its breast with its fist, for instance, and to found that edifice on its unavenged tears. Would you be consent to be the architect of those conditions? Tell me, and tell me the truth. Close In 1957, H. K. Proposed that at a time when lynching still occurred in the American South, that if a white woman had been raped and a white mob convened to take revenge upon a group of black Americans, who they falsely suspect of being culpable for the heinous crime, and that they would lynch the whole lot of them, a utilitarian would think it would be moral to frame one innocent person to remove blame from the group, thus saving many lives. While another cause suspects that if a surgeon is ready to perform a delicate operation on a patient, but just before going into surgery, that four other patients in the hospital are in urgent need of a heart, liver and two kidneys, that the patient on the operating table is a perfect match, and that the operation being a delicate one, nobody would be surprised if the patient died on the table, should the surgeon perform the operation in such a way that protects four precious organs in the case of the first patient dying, then the other four in need of the organs can get them. Yet these cases, often seen as a death blow to the utilitarian idea, is based upon the idea that we'd have all these facts beforehand 
and that killing the innocent will not, in the long run, cause more problems. If the white mob finds out that the sheriff framed an innocent person, then reprisals may lead to more deaths. If patients find out that doctors may kill patients in order to save others, people may stay away from hospitals causing more problems. Another criticism is that it is hard to measure utility. In a perfect utilitarian world, you could say when changing a bus route that it would make 90% of people happier and 10% of people less happy. In a utilitarian world, you might want to be able to do this, but how do you measure the happiness potential? Despite sci-fi ideas of happiness measurers proposed in the 19th century to be called a hedometer, we do not have these inventions, and so in lieu, we have to use our gut, leading to imprecision. Most morality is shaped by law. It used to be God's law, but is now in most countries secular law. Most people will follow a law, even if they disagree with it. Is it a terrible thing if a 17-year-old sneaks into a club while a load of immature 18-year-olds are allowed in perfectly fine, yet people still follow this law? Whereas, if you were to follow the utilitarian idea, you might allow the immature 17-year-old in, but not let the immature 18-year-old in. But giving these moral decisions for people to make would be far too tricky for people to make on the fly. You would be tasked with making utilitarian decisions every minute of every day. So maybe, in some circumstances, rule utilitarianism is not the worst thing. I am currently saving money for a few expensive purchases. I want to buy a new Fender Stratocaster for about £1,200. I'm also wanting to buy a new computer. This would set me back about £2,500. That is a lot of money, which is why I'm having to save. The £3,700 I would be splashing out would make me quite happy, and it would improve my life a little bit. But there is now a movement called Effective Altruism. They seek to maximise charity in the most efficient way possible. They calculate that it costs only $3,340 to save a life. This money could be given to the Against Malaria Foundation. If I spend all that money on a couple of items, I am obviously not utilising my money in the best way possible. But what is the chance I give this money to charity rather than buy the items I want instead? Very little indeed. Utilitarian ideas require us to think a lot of the time to be moral saints rather than the flawed, normal human beings we all are. Another criticism proposes, there is a fire in the building, three children are dying, one child is in one part of the building, two are in another part of the building. You can go to one part of the building and save the one child, or go to the other part of the building and save the two children, but you cannot save all three. Where do you go? The answer is obvious, you save the two children. But what if the lone child was your baby girl or baby boy? Would that change your mind? Even if you know you should save the two children, I think everybody would save their own offspring first. So what has utilitarianism actually done for us? Where is its real-world impact? Utilitarian ideas are now near mainstream. The case of euthanasia, where somebody is terminally ill 
and wants to die often has strong utilitarian overtones to the debate. The utilitarian argues it should be permitted to allow somebody to die if they are suffering constantly with no hope for happiness. This was one of the main reasons Canada legalised euthanasia in 2009. The suffering of animals is something utilitarians have often highlighted as a gross moral sin. Bentham and Mill both spoke about speciesism, even though the word wasn't coined yet when they were alive. Bentham spoke about extending protection to all sentient beings, even when there were no laws in England about cruelty to animals. Even now, with many laws prohibiting cruelty to animals, there is still far more suffering, with 65 billion vertebrate land animals killed for food every year, many of them factory farmed and in terrible condition. The utilitarian question about animal research is more nuanced. A utilitarian approach probably differs from an animal rights activist, as while they would agree on a moratorium against animal testing for cosmetics, for pharmaceuticals the case is less easily answered. If the following criteria are followed, a reasonable chance of discovering how to prevent or cure a disease that brings large numbers of suffering or death, how to prevent or cure a disease that brings large numbers of suffering or death to large numbers of animals or people, then I think most utilitarians would probably agree that animal research is justifiable. If there is no other way to achieve this goal without using animals, all possible steps are taken to reduce pain and suffering to the animals, then the use of animals for research will be justified. Effective altruism is perhaps the latest key idea in utilitarianism. Taking an impartial perspective on whom we should help, it aims to maximise and use evidence in order to do good in the world. Effective Altruism's founder, Toby Ord, compared the effectiveness of donating to a charity that trained guide dogs, something that costs about $40,000 to a charity. Donating to a charity that caused trachoma is 1,600 times more effective than a charity that trains guide dogs. Effective altruists aren't concerned with morality as much as outcome. They don't really care if you're doing something they don't really care if you are doing something only because you want a good reputation or if you genuinely want to help. So maybe you're one of those celebrities who just does charity work for the good PR. Well, as long as you are actually doing good, most utilitarians don't care. Utilitarianism is a great invention. It is now part of the secular tradition of morality and helped us gain a moral system without needing to refer to biblical texts many of which are now somewhat out of date. Like all great inventions, utilitarianism can be modified, changed and adapted depending on the time and the place or the need. Utilitarianism has pushed us forward into caring for others and has been influential in making the world a better place for everybody to live in. For these reasons, it is listed at number 80 on my list of the greatest inventions of all time.